0: Okay. Okay. Uh, why does anything move in the human body or in nature?
1: Gradient.
0: Yesterday was a pretty blustery day, right? A real windy day. Why was that wind blowing?
1: Pressure.
0: pressure gradient. You had high pressure system coming in across the country, and the pressure here in Georgia was a little bit lower, so the wind blows. That's why anything moves in nature is a pressure gradient. Facilitated diffusion. We talked about diffusion, which we kind of were talking about oxygen for carbon dioxide in your external and internal respirations. But then we also talked about osmosis. What what's moving typically when you're talking about osmosis? Water, liquid, okay. And then we talked about facilitated diffusion. What was the difference there? Yes, when there's a a molecule like sugar, let's say, that's too large to pass through that uh, one cell thick membrane of the cell, right? So it has to have help getting in there. And then you have something like insulin that would facilitate that diffusion, that that sugar molecule moving inside the cell. Do y'all remember which one of these three processes of endocytosis would be facilitated diffusion? Did anybody remember it like, which, maybe like, which one receptor mediated it might be? Receptor-mediated endocytosis. And think about it, receptor-mediated, that still implies that something's doing something to help, right? Facilitated diffusion. All right. Uh, hypertonic, isotonic, and hypotonic the three fluid compartments that we have in our body and where fluid exists naturally in the human body. And the fact that water follows sodium. Water follows sodium. It's going to follow the salt, okay? So, and we're looking at these, uh, these words, the medical prefix hyper, above, above hypo, above. and iso, <laughs> equal, right? So, if you introduce a fluid into somebody's vessel... That is isotonic, and the tone of a fluid means how closely does it resemble the fluid that's naturally in the body, right? Right. The tonicity of it. So if it's isotonic, it's kind of the same or equal. Is that going to cause a fluid shift one way or the other? No, No, it's going to. It basically serves as a volume expander. And what type of IV fluids do we give in the pre-hospital setting? Isotonic, isotonic. Crystalloids, which would be normal saline lactate arrangements.
1: Apologies.
0: No worries. We're good. It's like
1: it's
0: literally on that one. You're fine. And then we listed the 12 body systems. Uh, yeah, we looked at this fancy picture and went, ooh. And then we started with the anatomy, the bones. We talked about that. Uh, what are the three parts of a long bone? Diaphysis, metaphysis, 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 epiphysis. And what's periosteum?
1: The
0: lining around the bone. Okay. And what happens inside of those long bones? Red blood cell production, reabsorption. Alright, so I'm kind of talking as we find in the slide that we need to start at. What's the one bone that doesn't come in contact with any other bone? And the hyoid bone, in conjunction with the ninth pair of cranial nerves, allows you to do what? Swallow. Swallow, primarily. We, how many vertebrae do you have? How many are fused? Nine. The last, yeah, the last nine. Seven cervical, twelve thoracic, five lumbar, five sacral, and then the uh, four coccygeal. Pew, pew, pew. bones yep 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 mm-hmm. appendicular skeleton leg the knee the ankle what are three types of muscles we have in our body smooth skeletal and cardiac striated is also called skeletal or voluntary so there's three names for that right? smooth muscle is involuntary and they, and they do those things they encapsulate tubular structures in the body like your, your blood vessels your intestines your esophagus things of that nature and uh, cause those wave-like contractions that propel objects through the tubular structures and what do we call that? Peristalsis. All right. Anatomy. What divides the upper from lower airway? The glottic opening right between the vocal cords. Yeah. 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 I was about to say a lot. So, what's tidal volume? We talked about that last class. It's the amount of air that you inhale when you expand your chest wall, right? And what is average tidal volume for the adult? 500 cc's. What's the difference between a cc and a milliliter? Nothing. It's the same, okay? So don't worry about that. If you pull in 500 cc's and you fully expand your chest, is all of that usable? How much is usable? 350 350 cc's or milliliters. And why is that an easy number to remember? Because you have 350 million alveoli, one per American, right? (coughs) Easy numbers. That's counting Hawaii and Puerto Rico, by (laughs) the way. All right, so I'm remembering we talked about this already. I think we talked about um did we talk about this? Yeah. <coughs> yes, we did. You know what? We're going to start right here. Right. Cuz even if we did, it ain't going to hurt you to hear it again. <laughs> uh the respiratory system physiology. Uh Michael, why do we breathe? No. no. Wrong. You fail. Why do we breathe? I was just carbon to the buildup of carbon dioxide. Thank you, Michael.
1: <laughs>
0: so the body, David. What part of the body detects that we built up carbon dioxide? What in the body tells the, us that? The brain. No, not, not specifically, Christian. Chemo-receptors. chemoreceptors. Those chemoreceptors that are it. Y'all have heard this before, right? The chemoreceptors that's in your carotid arteries and your aortic arch, they detect elevated levels of carbon dioxide. So then, Morgan, what happens then? Once we detect these elevated levels of carbon dioxide, what happens? Not yet. Yeah, you skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Crystal, what happens then? They, the the. They, the receptors pick up elevated levels of carbon dioxide and they send a signal to where? James.
1: The
0: dorsal respiratory group. Dorsal respiratory group, which is located brain in the brainstem. Because that is that's where your apneustic centers lie. That is the part that naturally controls breathing. Okay? So then your dorsal respiratory group in the, in the, in the uh, brainstem forwards that signal on to the intercostal muscles, which is between the ribs, and the diaphragm, which causes them to contract, right? And when they contract, that increases the anterior-posterior and inferior-superior dimensions of the thoracic cage. As it gets larger, volume remains the same. What happens to pressure inside the chest? It decreases. And, and think about it like this, guys. If you've got, let's say, your booster tank on the engine has, what, 500, 750 gallons, depending on the engine, I guess. You have the same amount of water, and you got some water running through an inch and three-quarter, and you got a, the same amount of water running through a two-and-a-half. What's the pressure in the two-and-a-half going to be in relationship to the inch and three-quarter? It's going to be dropped. It's going to be less, Right. It's the easy way to remember it. Okay? So, now we've expanded our chest, so the pressure inside the thoracic cage drops. And it creates a pressure gradient between your lungs, the thorax, and the atmosphere. So, air rushes in. It rushes in until, and all things in the body naturally are wanting to equalize, right? So, it rushes in until so the pressures equalize. There's stretch receptors in your lungs called the Herring Brewer Reflex. And that's what detects that all right, you're starting to expand the chest a little too far. The lungs are filled. And it tells you to stop because if you keep going, you're going to basically damage the lungs, right? So that's when you stop breathing in. And that's the active process of respiration. So then what happens? Be sure to sign in, Dakota. You relax, right? All the muscles relax, your chest wall returns to its normal shape and size. So now you've created another pressure gradient, but just in the other direction. There's higher pressure inside of your chest than in the atmospheric air. So air rushes out till pressures equalize, and that's the passive process of respiration. In other words, no work has to occur for that to happen. You just relax. Okay. So anyhow. When you fully expand your chest and you stop breathing in and then that's when you've got all this oxygen uh, inside your alveoli, and what are you looking at here? You're looking at the capillary beds that kind of encapsulate your alveoli, right? So once you take that full breath, the stretch receptors kick in, you stop breathing. So now you have all this oxygen, or this air, I should say, inside of your 350 million million alveoli. So the pressure gradient, the amount of oxygen that's inside your alveoli is higher than your deoxygenated blood that's in your capillary beds, right? So what happens to the oxygen that's in the alveoli? It passes through that one cell thick membrane into the capillary beds until pressure is kind of equalized. So now, this deoxygenated blood is then engorged, your capillary beds is coming from the rest of the body where oxygen's already been consumed. And when oxygen's consumed through aerobic metabolism, the byproduct, by-product is carbon dioxide, right? So there's got a whole bunch of carbon dioxide in here, very little in your alveolar sacs. So, how does it move? From the capillary beds into the alveoli, fill them, and then you relax and exhale, and carbon dioxide leaves the body. Simple enough, man. Right? Yeah, that's what that picture saying. All right, here's something to talk about, and I and I know this is an actual uh, knowledge objective, right? The hypoxic drive. I just asked you, and we talked, well, I talked for a good five minutes or so explaining what we breathe because of a buildup of carbon dioxide and of the processes that have to take place to make all that happen. Some people, especially those who have certain diseases uh, like uh, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, more specifically emphysema, they breathe on what's called a hypoxic drive because they function on a day to day basis with elevated amounts of carbon dioxide in their blood, right? So, why do they breathe then? Increased level of because of lack of oxygen, okay? Now let me just ask you before we go any further, uh, and I know we haven't really gotten in the advanced portion here to to uh, emphysema but we've covered it in the emt and i know you guys have already covered it but just see who remembers why do emphysema patients or some emphysema patients uh, have an elevated amount of carbon dioxide on a regular basis causing them to breathe on a hypoxic drop why do they retain carbon dioxide is what I'm trying to get to yes sir
1: because they have the uh, inability to actually expel all of the CO2 out of their lungs
0: yes but why the um, doohickeys do, do collapse oh, yes. and that's the official medical term y'all write that one down <laughs> doohickeys <laughs> the alveoli collapse why do they collapse lack of surfactant, lack of surfactant which is the big problem when it comes to emphysema to begin with, right? And what's the number one reason that people stop producing surfactant? Cigarette smoking. smoking. If you ever wanted to quit, it'll never be easier than it is today, all right? But long story short, uh, that cigarette smoke and other things, other industrial, I guess, pollutants that you might be exposed to could cause it to happen also, but the primary reason is cigarette smoke. The surfactant goes away. Surfactant is what causes the alveoli to have that, that surface tension, which allows them to keep that that shape when they exhale and the pressures are kind of going away out of the sac. Um, that's why emphysema patients breathe through pursed lips, right? You, you've seen, you, you guys that have ran calls already, you, you've seen it a hundred times, if not a thousand times. They're sitting there in the house with... 500 foot of oxygen tubing and and they're sitting in the recliner going they don't really understand why that makes them feel a little bit better but it kind of makes them feel a little bit better, right? Because if they breathe through those pursed lips what is that doing to the pressure in their bronchial tree? It's maintaining pressure, right? They're, They're exhaling but it's keeping some of that back pressure intact. That's right. So um, so long story short, that's the hypoxic drive, and that's uh, really what it's about. So with that being said, that's why y- y'all run a call right now, somebody's having extreme difficulty breathing, and they're an emphysema patient, and, and man, I was taught to put them on a non-rebreather at 15, right? Because man, they're struggling. What's the first thing the paramedics going to do when they get there? So yeah, well, first thing they going to do is take your non-rebreather off, right? Yeah. And maybe put them on a nasal cannula at like four liters per minute or something. Let them do it. Because what? what's their fear? What's their overriding fear? Why do they do that? You give them too
1: much, too much
0: oxygen. Too much oxygen they'll do what? Now you got to remember why are they breathing in the first place? Because they, they retain carbon dioxide so they're not breathing because of too much carbon dioxide. They're breathing because of a lack of Oxygen. So the fear is, not necessarily that they'll pass out, but if you give them too much oxygen, they'll stop breathing. Listen to me. The human animal has to have oxygen, has to have sugar. If, if they're in extreme distress when you get there, you put them on that non-breathing mask. Let the paramedic do what he or she wants to do when they get there. doesn't matter. Give them that oxygen. Let me ask you a question. If you give them oxygen and they stop breathing... What are you going to do? Take the oxygen off. And do what? Breathe for Because no matter what, you cannot get around the fact that we cannot live without oxygen. Right. Can't do it. So when the paramedic gets there, let them do what they're going to do. Because they're doing what they're doing based on their protocols and the, and the latest science there, you know. So just keep that in mind. Yep. Acid-based balance. Raise your hand if you think this is complicated. Yeah, it's not. I promise you. There's people who put their kids through college and made their house payments on a monthly basis trying to convince you that this is complicated. But it's not. I promise you it's not. All right. So what is the normal acid-base balance? Let me just read this first. Acid is increased hydrogen ions in a solution. Hydrogen. That's the primary acid in the body that we're talking about. A base means there's a decreased amount of hydrogen in there. Acid or base. That's why it's called acid-base balance. Because there needs to be a balance. Um, and it says most common expression of acidity is pH. So you notice, and it, it's always looked weird to me initially, but you got a little peak. And a big H, what does that stand for?
1: Phosphorus.
0: No. Yeah. What is that? What is the uh, acid again? Hydrogen. Increased hydrogen. hydrogen. So potential. little p, big H, is it stands for the potential for hydrogen. pH. What is the normal pH of the human animal? What's it supposed to be? Seven point three five. 7.45. What happens if you're too far this direction? You're acid. Acid. you That's dead. Acid. you dead is what you are if you're too far this direction. What happens if you're too far that direction? You're just basic. You're dead. Okay, you're dead. <laughs> you're dead from acidity. You're dead from alkalosis. But dead is dead, right? Very small window. 7.35 to 7.45. Now, if you, I'm not telling you the second you hit 7.34, you did. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you get outside of that small window, you did. Long story short. So, and I want you to look at this right here. Things, I guess, in, in our lives or whatever. Keep it in mind, 7.35 to 7.45 is the window that we exist in. Uh, something so looking at the scale and we're going to just go ahead and draw this out because the newcomers of the class, y'all will figure this out very quickly, I'm a natural artist alright and my drawings are going to be so much better than those in that old raggedy book alright so we're looking at the pH scale, it runs from zero to what? fourteen so dead smack middle is going to be seven right? That's actually neutral, right? Mm-hmm. So, we're not really neutral, right? And no, normally, if we're 7.35 to 7.45, we're probably, let's just say, right here. I'm going to put that L in that little block right there because that represents life.
1: Okay, that's what you have
0: to be. Alright, so, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, six. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay. So I'm going to get all fancy and change colors on it too. So anything this direction, anything less than 7 is said to be what? An acid. And anything above 7... It's said to be what, a base or an alkali. alkalosis, acidosis, acid base, and look at it. Stomach acid's very acidic, right? It's a stomach acid. That, 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 that just that's simple, right? So let me just ask you a question before I go any further. If you've been vomiting for three, four, five days. What problem do you think might start to develop in your pH balance? <coughs> what, which direction are you going to travel on this scale? You've been throwing up excessively. Are you going to become more acidic or are you going to become more alkaline? Right, because you're losing acid. You're going up this way on the scale, right? Just from vomiting for three, four, five days. Okay, hold that thought. Lemon juice is an acid. You don't believe it. Put some in your mouth. Vinegar, wine, something. Pickles. 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 You know that's acid. Tomato juice, black coffee, your saliva, milk, blood, pure water is neutral, they say. Baking soda, ocean water, household ammonia, oven cleaner. All of them go in that direction. Okay, so so if you've been throwing up for several days, and th- let me just back up, there's two ways that your pH can get out of balance. It's either a problem with your breathing or a problem in, in on, on the metabolic side. Its either respiratory or metabolic? One of the two, okay? And if National Registry is going to ask you a question about any of this, they're going to want you to identify what the problem is. They'll give you a scenario, and they'll say, is this respiratory acidosis, A, or B, respiratory alkalosis, or C, metabolic acidosis, or D, metabolic alkalosis. And that's what they're going to want you to do, is pick what the problem is, what's causing the abnormality. Okay? So... This is our scale, 0 to 14, 7 is neutral. Where are we normally? 7.35 to 7.45, right? A little on the alkaline side. And if you go down the scale this direction, you're becoming acidotic. And if you're going up that way, you're becoming alkalotic or basic, right? (coughs) Everybody with me? We're tracking. Is any of this hard yet? No. Okay, so registry is going to want you to tell them what the problem is, what's causing the problem. And there's two things that can cause a problem with your pH, your respirations or metabolic in nature, right? All right, you have three buffering systems, okay? These are the three things. Listen, good Lord knows what he's doing. Everything in the body, there's a system built in to take care of problems. When they arise. So, to begin with, to maintain that 7.35 to 7.45, there has to be a 20 to 1 ratio. Everybody in the room write that down. In order to maintain 7.35 to 7.45 pH, there has to be a 20 to 1 ratio between the carbonic acid in your body and the bicarbonate in your body. 20% bicarbonate, 1% carbonic. It has to be a 20 to 1 ratio. And that's going to maintain that 7.35 to 7.45. Bicarbonate. Yes. Now. Yes, for, for us to be in that 7.35 to 7.45, there has to be, in the body, there has to be a 20 to 1 ratio of bicarbonate to carbonic acid. And there's three ways that the body does that. If the body detects, and, and what in the body is going to detect that maybe you're becoming a little acidotic or a little alkalotic? there's chemoreceptors. Getting back to chemicals again, right? So, the body, let's say the body detects it. Man, we're, we're starting to, to go either direction. It doesn't matter at this point. Our pH is starting to fluctuate to a point to where the body thinks it needs to react. You've got the first buffering system. Uh, has anybody found it in the book? Do you know what it is? I didn't ask you to look. But I didn't know if somebody sees it right now. It's the bicarbonate buffering system. Basically, the body will just secrete more bicarbonate. Alright? If, if you're becoming too acidotic, it's going to secrete more bicarbonate to get us back up. That's your bicarbonate buffering system, and it acts in seconds to correct the problem. And y'all need to know these time frames for these things, Okay? The bicarbonate buffering system will secrete more bicarbonate and it acts in seconds to correct the problem. If that doesn't work, your respiratory system will kind of kick in. I told you all a little while ago that water follows what? Sodium. Sodium. Well, listen, hydrogen follows something also, it follows carbon dioxide. Hydrogen follows carbon dioxide, so if the, if the bicarbonate buffering system doesn't fix the problem within seconds, within within minutes to hours, your respiratory system will kick in and help the problem. Depending on which way you're fluctuating, let's say you're going, you're becoming acidotic. Okay, acids building up in your body. So knowing that hydrogen follows carbon dioxide, what do you think's going to happen to your respirations? they're going to get deeper and faster. So you blow off more carbon dioxide and therefore (laughs) lose more acid. You with me? Is any of this hard yet? No. So we've talked about the bicarbonate buffering system that works in seconds to correct a problem. Then we talked about the respiratory system that takes minutes to hours to fix a problem. Then the third buffering system is your renal system. All right? When you go make bubbles, what are you getting rid of? Water and uric acid. So, listen, but listen to me. If you're waiting on your kidneys to fix your pH imbalance, you're probably going to die. Alright? So, and I'm going to tell you a, a real funny joke that nobody else will think is funny. Okay, and they'll look at you like you're stupid every time you say it. One, because they don't really understand it. And if they do understand it, they're going to think you're stupid, all right? But every time you got to go to the bathroom to pee, just look at everybody and say, hey, I'll be back in a minute. i got to go work on my long-term pH, all right? you not know what you're talking about. But the renal system helps you maintain long-term pH balances, okay? It's not going to fix a, an immediate problem. It's not but it helps to maintain your long-term balance. So what are our three buffering systems? What's the first one that works in seconds? Bicarbonate buffering buffering system. What's the second one that works in minutes to hours? Respiratory Mm -hmm. system. And the third one? Mm -hmm. Your renal system. And if you're waiting on your kidneys to fix it, what's going to happen to you?
1: You're
0: probably going to die. All right? Long-term pH anything complicated about that what's that ratio between bicarbonate and uh, bicarbonate carbonic acid and bicarbonate 20 to 1 okay any questions so far yes sir
1: so where does DKA fall into this or is that
0: that's a very good question and it's very easily explainable bear with me for two seconds okay sorry you you ain't gonna apologize all right All right, so we didn't, man. We didn't got all fit, man. They've left a bunch of stuff out. All right, so listen, uh, I told you there's two things that's going to mess up your pH. It's either your your breathing or the metabolism, the metabolic part, right? So if Red Street gives you a scenario to where, let's just say they've taken, uh, well, let's just go with the soup of the month. Uh, They've taken a bunch of heroin and they're breathing two times a minute when you get there. Listen to me. Your acid No, I'm not going to say that right. I'm not saying that right. Your your pH is inversely proportionate to your respiration. Now, in English what I just said was inversely proportionate. That means the slower Y'all forgive me, not your acid. Your pH is inversely proportionate to your respirations. So if your respirations are slowing down, what happens to acid? It's increasing. So respirations are down. Acid is there. Respirations are up. You go more to to the alkaline side. Am I making that as confusing as I can? If you're not breathing at all, or breathing very, very slow, your acid's going up. And that is called respiratory acidosis. So if they give you a scenario and the patient's breathing about two times a minute or not breathing at all, the problem is respiratory acidosis. If they give you a scenario where the patient's breathing 32 times a minute, Maybe even forearms are cramping up or whatever. What's the problem? Respiratory alkalosis. They're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. And what's following the carbon dioxide? The acid. So they're losing acid going up the pH scale. Respiratory alkalosis. So you look at it, and if the problem is the breathing... And I'm saying it that way for a reason because we're going to talk about DKA in a minute. But if the problem is the breathing, breathing's down, pH is down, right? (coughs) Acidotic, respiratory acidosis. If the breathing's up, it's respiratory alkalosis. That's not hard, right? So, but if you're looking at a scenario and nothing about the breathing's really jumping out at you. But they say patient's been vomiting for a week diarrhea for a week what's going to be wrong with the pH in it's not respiratory it's metabolic alkalosis because they've been vomiting up that stomach acid losing acid for a week they're going up the pH scale it's not a respiratory problem so it's metabolic alkalosis you with me Maybe they give you a scenario uh, to where um, a, another one uh, and I've actually heard of this one being on a test but you come into a residence the scenario is they're laying on the couch uh, maybe they're in cardiac arrest or whatever but there's a bucket of vomit next to the couch and a big bottle of antacid tablets anti-acid tablets not respiratory right? But what's the problem? They've taken so many of these anti-acid tablets. They're alkaline. And it's not respiratory, so it's metabolic. You with me? Okay. Um, What are the two things that all cells require normally to produce energy to begin with? Oxygen and sugar, right? We've talked about that ad nauseum. Okay, we really have. And what's the byproduct of Aerobic metabolism, carbon dioxide, a little bit of heat, a little bit of moisture, whatever. But the cells don't have the option to not produce energy, right? Because if they don't produce energy, they die. We've been over that too. So if there's no oxygen, they produce energy anyhow. That's called anaerobic metabolism. And what's the byproduct of that? Lactic acid. All right? Let's say there's no sugar present because maybe they're diabetic. They didn't take their insulin. So all the sugars are accumulating in the bloodstream but not getting in the cells because it can't do the facilitated diffusion without the insulin, right? So the cell still has to produce energy. But what are the byproducts of cellular... Uh, um, Senior moment, y'all overlook me here. I'll kick back in the gear here in a second. If the cells produce energy without the sugar, what do they use to produce energy? Fat. And what are the byproducts? These things called ketones. Ketones. And what are ketones? By the way, they're acids. Okay, so now these cells are producing energy without the ins, uh, without the sugar because of a lack of insulin. The byproducts are ketones. What's DKA? A so many ketones have been released. They're probably <laughs> unconscious at this point. Uh, what if? Where are they? What's happening on this pH scale? They're going down. They're becoming acidic, right? Because of all these ketones that have been released. It's not respiratory. So it's metabolic acidosis. And I want everybody to room to write this down. I'm telling you, you may see it. Registry may give you a scenario and they'll tell you specifically. And, and listen to you, I'll even give you a disclaimer. As I'm standing here at this very moment, I have to go back and look and and read again to tell you exactly why, why what I'm about to tell you is true. But I know for a fact what I'm about to tell you is true. If the registry says they've been vomiting the contents of their lower digestive tract. You think about what that is to begin with. All right. And that's particularly nasty. But then that's metabolic. Um. Acidosis, not alkalosis. If they're vomiting normal stomach contents, that's metabolic alkalosis. If it's lower intestinal tract, it's going to be metabolic acidosis. It's, it goes opposite. And I have to back up and read again to come back and explain to you why that's true. But, but it is true. Okay?
1: Say it
0: again, Chief. The vomit of the lower... Yes. Yeah, the, if, if they're vomiting contents of their lower digestion, uh, digestive tract, like below the stomach, that's the chime and, and partial bowel and uh, feces, okay? Then it's going to be opposite. So you
1: said that's
0: metabolic acidosis. acidosis. So, but let's, let's talk about this DKA again for just a minute, because I told you it's either respiratory or metabolic. Don't make the mistake, because if someone's in DKA, what do their respirations look like? deep and fast that's called Kuzma's right why are their respirations deep and fast blow off that that acid because that's your second line of defense with your pH right it's your respiratory system so don't confuse it's the chicken or egg thing which comes first right in that scenario it's not a respiratory problem but you have a respiratory component kicking in trying to fix the problem y'all tracking does that seem hard it's not. Just know, if they ask you an acid-base balance question, there's going to be one of four answers. Look at your scenario. Is the root problem respiratory? And if the answer is yes, then ask yourself, are respirations slow or non-existent? Because if it is, they're building acid because they're not exhaling any carbon dioxide. If So they're acidotic. If the respirations are fast or elevated, it's the other way. Respiratory alkalosis. Okay? And somewhere in your book there's a big formula about that freaking (laughs) long that tells you what I just said. Has anybody found it? Can you find it for me? It's got some H's and some CO's and plus signs and stuff like that.
1: CO2 plus HO2. Keep reading. CO two plus H O two respiratory component H uh, two CO three uh, circulating bicarbonate buffer component which changes into hydrogen or HCO3 three negative plus hydrogen plus is your renal component. Is that the one that I got? CO two plus H two O plus. Uh, I need glass. Discovery. <laughs> yeah, I think you have
0: so, what I'm telling you is, if, you, if you're if just looking at stuff like that, that's going to seem complicated. But I promise you, it is not. Because what I've told you is what you need to know to answer the questions on the registry exam. Now, I hate the, the thought of teaching to a test. But the reality is, you, you have to be able to answer those questions on that test, too. So, um... I've got another handout that I might have to give you next class or whatever. But, uh, uh, it's not a handout actually. But I'm going to give you some some blood gases, okay, and um, and we can talk about some of this other stuff and maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. Does everybody have this written down that wants to write it down? Okay. So, So let's just look at it like this and y'all write this down. If breathing is up, all right, breathing's elevated. What's your CO CO2 is what? Carbon. Carbon dioxide. What's that? Without the two. Carbon monoxide. Okay, but we're talking about carbon dioxide. If breathing is up, your CO2 is going to be what? Down. 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 Okay. So, looking in your book, somebody tell me what H2CO3 would be. Look in your book. h H2, 2 H2CO3. H2CO3 is carbonic acid? So, if breathing is up, the carbon dioxide is down, what do you think your carbonic acid is going to be? It's going to be down. Because it's following the carbon dioxide, right? So, what's that going to do to the pH? pH? pH is down. Breathing is inversely proportionate to your pH. As fast as the breathing goes up is how fast the pH goes down. Does that make sense? Alright. So... So, in reverse, then, well, let's just write write these other things down. We've already said, and everybody write this down because you're going to have a quiz on this. What's normal pH? 7.35 5 to 7.45 7.45. Okay. We need to know that. <coughs> P-A-O-2. What's PaO2? Somebody look in the book and tell me what PaO2 stands for. Partial arterial pressure. Of, of oxygen. oxygen. Partial arterial pressure of oxygen. Okay? What's your PaO2? Well, let's just say. And anytime you see MMHG, that stands for millimeters of mercury. Your PaO2 should be between 80 and 100 millimeters of mercury. And yes, these are lab values. Are you going to be able to get these in the back of an ambulance a lot of times? No. We're going to go with the pulse oximeter, right? Uh, And verify it with the pulse each time the little bar graph moves or the little heart shows up, right? To make sure it's accurate. But you need to know these things. pH is 7.35 to 7.45. Your PaO2 is 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury. Okay? So... (coughs) That being said, then what is PaCO2? Arterial pressure of carbon dioxide. carbon dioxide. What's the normal amounts of carbon dioxide in the blood? 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. H
1: Kyle,
0: wiggle your finger around on that pad in there. HCO three is what? If H two CO three you said was carbonic acid,
1: I, I,
0: I got I got four folks talking to me. What? Sorry, if breathing goes
1: up. Doesn't the pH balance go up because it's alkalosis? Breathing,
0: mm-hmm. Breathing goes up. Breathing goes up, your carbon dioxide goes down, so your pH balance goes up. Yes, that is absolutely That's right. Man, y'all got to speak up sooner than that. I wrote the wrong thing. Yeah. Your acid is inversely, and this is why I tripped myself up on earlier. Thank you for catching that. What's HCO3? It is the bicarbonate. That's right. And you should have 21 to 28 milli equivalent per liter. MEQ slash L, 21 to 28. You need to know these. You'll have a quiz on these. And guess what? How many have you seen those on your test yet? I've
1: had four questions on every test. There's a question on the CO2 when it goes down and it goes up. I remember seeing something like
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be there. But again, this is not just for the test. Knowing these things, you can actually knowing. These levels and everything, especially the, the uh, PAO2 and your um, your, uh, uh, your PACO2, you see these numbers on these cardiac monitors start to move back to the regular limits or whatever. If you're working an a rest, that might indicate to you that things are going right and you might get ROSC here in a minute. So it's important to understand these things, not just because they're going to be on a test. Okay. Any questions about this so far? Well, y'all stretch yourself? Thank you. Um, who has questions about acid-base balance? If you look at these things, like I said, one thing that I didn't talk about specifically that I want to mention because you and you'll see this on news about once a year, uh, and it's not always the same problem. But let me let me just ask you a problem. Uh, ask you a question. Can you drink too much water? Yes. yes. What's going to happen to you? What category does that fall into? Metabolic <laughs> alkalosis, right? If you drink too much water, basically you're watering down your acid or, or removing too much acid to the uric acid. So that would kind of fall into the metabolic alkalosis, but you'll see it under diuretics. Diure- diuretics basically is medications or anything else that removes. Fluid or water from the body. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, But on here you'll see the four categories. You'll see causes, uh, potential causes of that particular problem, and then you'll see the reaction. Respiratory acidosis, pH is down, right? uh, PaCO2 is up. Uh, So just hold on that piece of paper. Study it. If you have any questions, or if you have any questions right now, let me know, okay? But other than that, we're going to move on if everybody's good. We good? All right. And we've kind of talked about all that. All right, so I'm going to stop right here just to talk about something uh... partial pressures you've heard me use that term a couple times already partial pressure of oxygen partial pressure of carbon dioxide you've got partial pressure of nitrogen Um, and i know that's not what this is specifically talking about but looking at this pie chart situation right here and i want you to think about the breath that you breathe in atmospheric air is made up of what does everybody have this all right. so let's say uh, you take a big old breath and let's imagine you're breathing in an old pie chart that's what goes in your nose hole when you take that breath The a pie chart okay? that's why it's so okay yeah. yeah All right. so most of what we breathe in most of what's in atmospheric air is what? nitrogen, nitrogen. how much? 78% 78% nitrogen so you could say the partial pressure of nitrogen would be 78 percent so there's how much oxygen twenty one percent so the partial pressure of oxygen that you breathe in would be twenty one percent and then you've got this little one percent of other gases okay But kind of think about it like that. And I know that's a goofy way of explaining it. But that's what they're talking about when they're talking about the partial pressures or something. So don't let that confuse you. We're just talking about all the many little pieces of the pie that make up one whole pie. Y'all with me? Thinking about fractions, right? All right. So we're looking at this. Tidal volume is the amount of air moved into or out of the lungs during a single breath. And it's normally how many cc's? Five hundred. How much of that do we get to use? Three hundred fifty. Why is that an easy number to remember? Three hundred fifty million alveoli, one per American. Right. God bless America. Uh, the inspiratory reserve volume says the deepest breath you can take after a normal breath. Okay, it is what it is. Expiratory reserve volume, same thing, opposite direction. Dead space is that air that doesn't reach the alveoli, right? Out of the 500, that's about 150. It's unusable. And minute volume is your tidal volume times...
1: respiratory
0: rate. Respiratory rate. All right? How many times a minute are you breathing? How much air are you breathing in? And does everybody understand and have a good grasp and a good understanding of why tidal volume is the most important part to assess when trying to determine whether somebody's breathing adequately or not. And I I don't want to belabor any points if we all have a firm grasp of that. But does everybody understand why? Okay. So you could be breathing eight times a minute, fully expanding your chest, You're actually bringing in, when you're looking at the minute volume, you're bringing in more air and therefore more oxygen than someone who's breathing real shallowly but breathing 30 times a minute. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. All right. I'm going to move on. Why is it important to know the characteristics of normal breathing? Because if you... Because if you can't recognize normal, you'll never be able to recognize abnormal, right? Normal rate and depth. Uh, What's the normal respiratory rate range for an adult? 12
1: to 20. Huh? I said per
0: minute. 12 to 20. What about a child? 15 to 30. An infant? 25 to 50. Engrain them numbers in your head. 12 to 20. 15 to 30. 25 to 50. Normal respiratory rate range. So they need to be breathing, fully expanding and relaxing their chest wall. They need to be breathing the right amounts of times in a minute, if that makes sense. And it needs to have a regular rhythm. Breathing should be rhythmic, coming in the same intervals of time. And it should be effortless. If if you're looking at them and you can tell... Man, they're really having to perform work to breathe. That's not normal. And that's very, very noticeable. Okay? Because it shouldn't be that way. All y'all breathing right now and it's not a conscious effort. Right? It's just happening. That's the way it should be. Good audible breath sounds on both sides of the chest. When you put that stethoscope on their chest wall, their anterior chest, and you're listening in four places, right? Here and here and here and here. Some people like to listen to the back. It's style points, right? Whatever works best for you. It doesn't really matter. As long as you hear air, an audible sound of air going into and coming out of the lungs. And it should be, the sound should sound the same on the left side as it does on the right side. And the top should sound the same as the bottom, right? And you should hear nothing else. Just air going in, air coming out. And it should be equal bilateral, right? It should sound the same on both sides. Regular rise and fall of both sides of the chest. The chest should move in a symmetrical fashion. The left side should come up as the same as the right and vice versa. Circulatory system, complex arrangement of tubes connected uh, to one another and a pump. And what's the pump? All right, that's right. Um, Michael, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself. Trace a drop of blood to the human body. Starting in the right atrium. Don't read it. Tell me. I it. Dakota. I know you used to know it. I used to
1: know it. Uh, right atrium, tricuspid
0: valve. All right, slow down. From the right atrium to the through the tricuspid valve right oh, to the right ventricle. From the pulmonic semilunar valve the pulmonary arteries. And what's unique about the pulmonary arteries? Yes. They carry deoxygenated blood. Okay? Pulmonary veins. Wait a minute. Now you skip the lungs altogether. Oh, yeah. So it goes to the lungs and then from the lungs pick up where you left off. <coughs> Anybody? From from the lungs,
1: from the lungs back up to the left atrium.
0: But via what though? Pulmonary veins. pulmonary veins. And what's unique about the pulmonary veins?
1: It's the only vein that carries fresh blood.
0: Because what makes an artery or a vein to begin with?
1: Deoxygenated versus oxygenated
0: blood. Direction of travel. Is the blood flowing to the heart or away from the heart? Okay. So anyhow, so it, it leaves the lungs, passes through the pulmonary veins into the left atrium, right? From the left atrium, it passes through what? What's another name for bicuspid? Bicuspid. Mitral valve or the bishop's mitre. Into the left ventricle. Correct? What's unique about the left ventricle? It's the strongest chamber in the heart, right? Because it performs the most work. So if it leaves the left ventricle, it passes through what? Aortic valve. Into the? From the aorta.
1: Arteries.
0: Arteries. Arterioles, capillary beds, venules, venules, veins, inferior and superior vena cava. I have a podcast that tells you about all that if you guys want to go back and kind of refresh on that too. Just flip all the way down to the bottom. It's there. I promise. Uh, Again, so that's the circulatory system. And it's a tubular structure in the body. So what surrounds them? particularly the arteries, smooth muscle, right? What do the smooth muscles do when you're talking about the blood vessels? They help you maintain blood pressure, right? Because if they constrict or get smaller and volume remains the same, what happens to pressure? Increases. If some disease process or some injury causes those muscles to relax so the vessels get larger, what happens to blood pressure? Simple hydraulics, right? And it ain't hard. Again, uh, circulatory system anatomy is a complex arrangement of tubes connected to one another in a pump. Also called the cardiovascular system. It isn't an entirely closed system because just like your fire pumps, if you get too much air in there, that's a problem, right? We call that cavitation, right? Your heart could cavitate as well. But it's not going to sound like gravels in it, though. All right? You have two primary circulatory systems. Two, I guess, secondary circulatory systems. You have the, the, the pulmonary circulatory system, which is that section of the, of the vessel that goes from the right ventricle to the lungs and then back to the left atrium and then you have your systemic circulatory system which circulates blood everywhere else, right? Systemically. Each time the left ventricle contracts and the right ventricle contracts, it should eject a certain amount of blood. 70 milliliters. And what do we call that? That is stroke volume. The normal stroke volume is 70 milliliters. Can we measure stroke volume in the field? No. We can't put a number on it, but can we tell whether it's adequate or not? Yes. If they have inadequate stroke volume, you walk in the room, how can you tell it that fast? Skin. Skin. Color, temperature, and condition. Because the instant the body detects that we're not circulating enough oxygenated blood, those pre- and post-capillary sphincters in the periphery of the body constrict, shunting blood away from the skin, redirecting it to vital organs. That's that life over limb mentality that the body has. Alright? So, alright. So, and there's old raggedy drawing of what I just told you about. (laughs) The heart is a muscular organ that pumps blood throughout the body, 70 milliliters at a time, right? Medical prefix myo means what? Muscle. Cardi. Blood does enter the right atrium via the superior and inferior vena cava and the coronary sinus. Basically, it just kind of leaks down into the coronary sinus and it's kind of absorbed into the heart from the top side of the body along with the superior vena cava. The amount of blood is returning to the right atrium. We've got a term for that too, right? The amount of blood returning to the heart is called what? Preload or preloading of the heart. Uh, there's a picture of it. Alright. Right atrium. Right ventricle. Then you've got your left atrium. And you've got the left ventricle. And looking at this drawing, you've got these tendons right here called the chordae tendinae. And you've got papillary muscles. And that's what manipulates those cusps in your atrioventricular valves your, bicuspid, your tricuspid and bicuspid valves are known as your atrioventricular valves because they separate the atrium from the ventricles okay? the valves that go to the pulmonary arteries and the aorta are called semilunar valves because if you looked at them they'd kind of be shaped like a half a moon semilunar valves again this stuff is not hard um All right. Bam. Blood passing from the atria to the ventricles flows through one of the two atrioventricular valves depending on whether we're looking at the pulmonary circulation or the systemic circulation. Um, So how many cusps do you think the tricuspid valve has? Three of them, right? Tricuspid. How many cusps do you think the bicuspid valve has? Two. Two. The aortic valve and pulmonic valve divide the heart from the aorta and the pulmonary arteries and the pulmonic valve regulates blood flow from the right ventricle to the pulmonary arteries and obviously the aortic valve regulates it to the aorta. The superior vena cava, inferior vena cava return deoxygenated blood from the body to the right atrium and that is called the preload or preloading of the heart. Let me ask y'all a question so you can critically think right now. How does the amount of blood returning to the heart affect the amount of blood that leaves the heart?
1: Pressure.
0: Pressure, you said. How? What do you mean? So, one comes in
1: and it's being drawn in by through the uh, electrical movement within the heart. So, whenever it goes lub up, that's usually your preload is that lub, so it's drawing all that blood in. I'm listening. <laughs> sorry, you looked away from me like I said something wrong. Sorry. So, your preload is that lub, so it brings it all in, and then once it fills up and the heart relaxes, all that pressure that's in that atrium pushes back up against the. Um, against the cusp or the semi-linear va- or up against the valve excuse me and then the valve pushes so it draws it out the rest of the way okay quite a few steps but. The semimod-
0: there's some truth to what you say. Semimod- what are you saying Cesar the same amount of blood it's
1: on the pre is
0: the same amount of blood that goes well for starters it's simple hydraulics right the pump can't pump more than it has, right? It just can't do it. Again, cavitation. But, somebody explain to me Starling's Law. What's Starling's Law? Who remembers the rubber band? Right. Tell, me, tell me, James. The more the ventricles of the heart expand with the
1: blood that fills the ventricles, the stronger it will kind of contract.
0: That's right. Starling's Law says the, the further a muscle stretches the stronger the resulting contraction will be to a point, right? Because if you stretch too far, it's going to break. So if you have adequate amounts returning to the atrial, it stretches them out, then that resulting atrial kick that shoots it through the atrial ventricular valves is stronger, therefore more adequately filling the ventricles. Does that make sense? Remember, too, the, the, the old muscle heads on Venice Beach, right? Yeah. Yeah, don't let them grab you. You'd be good, but they don't have that. That's that's called cardiomegaly. That's the version of cardiomegaly because if muscles are too big, they're not that. They can't stretch as well, and they're not as effective. But don't let them grab you. Uh, heart sounds. Nicholas brought this up. He said, "Love dub." The heart doesn't just. Beat, 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 beat. Right. It's it's like a two stage process. Right. The atria contract, and then a split second later, the ventricles contract. That's love, dub, love, dub. But in medical terms, love is called or documented as S one. Dub, or the ventricles contracting, is documented as S two. So if you're auscultating an apical pulse, and all I said is if you've got a stethoscope on the anterior chest and you're listening to the heartbeat, you should hear love, dove, love, dove, love, dove, S1, S2, S1, S2. But if you hear a third sound, how, what is that documented as? S3. It could be a murmur. It could be a swishing sound. It could be a clicking sound. It could be whatever. But you shouldn't have an S3 normally. It should be S1, S2, S1, S2. But then if you hear that, that third sound that's different, that's documented as S3. Okay? So, has everybody got that? I don't want to get too far ahead because I figured we'd talk about the electrical conduction system of the heart next. Uh, what's that one word, that one thing that makes cardiac muscles different than any other muscle? Automaticity. Automaticity. It means each cell thinks it is the heart. It can generate its own electrical impulse. Okay. Cardiac conduction system consists of the SA node or the sinoatrial node, the atrioventricular node or the AV node, the bundle of his, the right and left bundle branches, and the Purkinje fibers. Now, looking at it, the little node, the sinoatrial node, the SA node up here in the right atrium, right? It fires, and that's the original impulse that's going to, as an end result, create your heartbeat, okay? That is your first internal pacemaker of the heart. The SA node typically fires somewhere between 60. And about 150 times a minute. It really can't fire any more than 150 times a minute. It just can't, okay? So, it fires under normal circumstances, okay? It fires, and then that electrical impulse travels through the internodal pathways. If you get on the interstate, what's it going to do? It's going to take you from state to state, right? The interstate. So, the internodal pathways is going to take you from node to node, y'all picking up what I'm putting down. So the SA node fires, the impulse travels through the internodal pathways down to the AV or atrioventricular node, but it also washes over here into the left atrium, and it, they don't have that name there, but that's called the Bachman's bundle. It goes down to the SA node and over to the Bachman's bundle the atria contract love S1 y'all with me? now what happens to the electrical impulse for just a fraction of a second at the AV node? it kind of pauses it's also known as the AV junction and, and think about two pastures with a fence thrown down the middle the pasture on top is your atria the pasture on the bottom is your ventricle and you got a fence all the way across there one way to pass, and that's through that gate. That gate would be your A-B junction or your A-B node, okay? You have to pass through there. And sometimes it takes a split second, I guess, to open the gate, so to speak. But it serves a better purpose than just giving me a country way of demonstrating it, okay? It's got another purpose. Why does it hold that that impulse up for just a fraction of a second right there? It
1: allows for filling of ventricles.
0: Allows for filling of the ventricles. It's that pause. Because if not, they would both contract at the same time. There'd be no lub dub, no S1, S2. Blood would move. Because you're not filling, you're not stretching, and you're not making the resulting contraction that much stronger. Y'all with me? So, it, it pauses for a second in that AV note. And at that point, comes down through the bundle of his to the uh, left and right bundle branches, down to the Purkinje fibers, which are in the uh, ventricles, and um, dove the ventricles contract. Yes, I told y'all. I'm a wonderful artist. (laughs) So. Yeah, that looks goofy. I get it. But whatever. You get the points. All right, looking at the ECG or EKG, whichever one you want to call it, uh, those, those things travel from left to right, and as you move from the left to the right, that represents time, right? So, in anything that's... Go- this imaginary line that runs right through the middle is called the isoelectric line. Anything above it is said to have a positive deflection. Anything below it is said to have a negative deflection. So, what's that? P-wave. That's the P wave. The P wave... Represents the firing of the SA node. That fires, it creates a P wave on your ECG. So now, as it goes that way, we're representing time, right? So it fires, travels through the internodal pathways, down to the AV node, and over to the Bachmann's bundle in the left atrium. Um And you don't have to know, there's a name for this segment, but you don't have to know it just yet, so don't cloud the mind. But that's represented right here. After the P wave fires, this short period of time right there represents the time that that pulse is going through the internodal pathways to the AV node and over to the Bachmann's bundle, okay? And then the atria contract, right? Once the atria contracts... It's held up for a split second, and it passes on down through the bundle of the bundle of His to the left and right bundle branches to the Purkinje fibers, and then the ventricles contract, and that is represented right here with the QRS complex or the depolarization of the ventricles. So then you've got the. Short period of time, right here, that again you don't have to know the name of it, but it has a name. But that's basically the ventricle. <laughs> forget it. What is this right here? T-way. This is the T wave. That's the repolarizing of the ventricles to get ready to accept the impulse from the next P wave. Y'all with me? You have. At the EMT and advanced EMT level, what you really need to know about an ECG is this. What is shockable and what's not. Okay? You have two shockable rhythms. Can anybody tell me what they are? V-fib and VTAC without a pulse. And why ultimately is VTAC without a pulse shockable? Because it's about to turn into what? V-fib. It's going to turn into V-fib. Asystole and PEA or pulseless electrical activity are they shockable? No, no. Nope, unless you're where. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Doesn't that involve a car battery and some
0: jumper cables? No, negative. No McGovern. <laughs> so, asystole or flatline, no matter how many times the TV wants to show you, that's not shockable. Okay. Uh, and PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity. If you look at the ECG and it just looks like a normal rhythm, but there's no associated pulse. I know American Art Association and ACLS and all that <laughs> when you take it, they don't even tell you a whole bunch to even reassess for pulses anymore, especially once you shock or defibrillate. But without that pulse, it's something altogether different, And it, but it's not shockable. So... VFIM and VTAC without a pulse is shockable. PEA asystole is not. All right. The three states of cardiac function. One refers to the strength of the ventricular contraction. What's that state called? Inotropic. Inotropic. The inotropic state. One speaks to the rate in which the heart is contracting. Chronotropic. And then the third one speaks to the rate in which the electrical activity is passing through the heart. That would be the dronotropic. Understand this. And you don't have to get into the weeds on this right now. But long story short, the chronotropic, dromotropic, and inotropic states of the heart, these are the the states that the cardiac medicines the paramedics push are going to act on one of these three states, if not multiple states, okay? Understand this, and at this point, this is what you need to know. You don't have to have any more knowledge than that. Um, but I would... Y'all know that, but somewhere in this chapter... You should see a little graph or a little chart of whatever that talks about the alpha and beta effects of the heart, and, or alpha beta effects on the body. Alpha, we might even break it down to like alpha one or beta one, beta two, and alpha one, alpha two, what have you. But somebody find that chart. It's somewhere. It might even be in uh, chapter, one of the medication chapters. 51. So, what's the first one? Alpha what? One. Alpha 1. What are the alpha 1 effects on the body? Peripheral. Huh? Peripheral, Peripheral. Peripheral. <laughs> All right, What's the next one? Little or no rocket construction. I've got a whole new pack of pans. All right, so little to no. bronchial constriction, right? Mm -hmm. Alright, so what's next? Beta 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 1, what is that? Increased heart rate. (coughs) What else? Increased automaticity.
1: (coughs) Okay. Increased contractility.
0: Them. All right. And, and what? Increased conductivity. All right. Now, does any of that look familiar? Like maybe something we just talked about? Yeah. So, if someone, if a paramedic administers a, a beta 1 drug, what's it going to do to the heart?
1: It's going to slow it down.
0: It's, it's gonna, going to it's gonna
1: it's what? Oh, it's going to increase. It's like okay. gonna,
0: I was thinking blocker. So do you think it's going to hit all three of those states, chronotropic, dronotropic, and ionotropic? Yeah. Okay. All right, so what else? So beta two. All right, so what's beta 2? Vasodilation. And you said Vasodilation. Okay. Beta two. So beta one, beta two, alpha one, alpha two. So listen, it's all and and every a lot of things goes back to your sample history and getting the history of your patient too. So if someone is on a beta blocker normally every day as a maintenance med, they take a beta blocker. What problem are they trying to address usually? High blood blood pressure. pressure. So what's their heart rate going to be?
1: Low.
0: Low. And the rest of that's going to be low because they're trying to get the pressure down. If it's a beta blocker, it's going to block all the things that the beta effects are. Does that make sense? Mm All right. Y'all need to know that. Might have that on a quiz too one day real soon. Right, the cardiac cycle is the process that creates the pumping of the heart. A ventricular systole and ventricular diastole. Uh, systole is the contraction of the ventricular mass and pumping of the blood into the systemic circulation. Let me ask you a question. During ventricular systole, which valves are open? Semilunar valves, right? Because the ventricles are contracting. Your atrial ventricular valves are closed to prevent regurgitation, but obviously semilunars are open so they can eject. That's 70 milliliters, correct? All right, so with that being said, ventricular diastole, which valves are open? The atrial ventricular <coughs> valves. That's right. So you can have that atrial kick, dump the blood into the ventricles. Starling's law we already talked about preload we've talked about we haven't talked about afterload it ain't on that slide neither but let's let's go ahead afterload is what pressure in which the uh,
1: ventricles have
0: to pump yes the amount of work that the that the left ventricle has to to generate and create to overcome the pressures in in the aorta. So it can eject that seventy milliliters, right? Because everything moves because of pressure gradients. And if you've got hypertension already, if you've got a buildup of uh, plaque in your arteries or whatever, now that inner lumen smaller, right? That that the pipe size has been diminished. So the left ventricle has to work harder to get that seventy milliliters through that now smaller hole, correct? So that's uh, uh, afterload. If you work a muscle too hard, what does it do? It builds in strength and size. But Unfortunately, with, with, unlike your biceps, your heart muscle, that's not a good thing, right? Because that affects that Starling's Law. If it's built up too much, we call that cardiomegaly, and it's very ineffective. Uh, three layers of or walls, if you will, of blood vessels. Tunica intima. Which one is that? It's the one in the, in the very center. Tunica media, if something's a media or medium it, or median, middle. it's in the middle. And the tunica adventia. What's one of the biggest differences between valves and arteries? Other than arteries are thicker, right? Because they have to hold in more pressure. But what are valves? Damn it.
1: Valves.
0: Yeah. <laughs> veins have valves, right? And arteries don't. Why do you have valves in, uh, in your veins? Yeah, especially in the lower extremities, right? As that blood starts to come back up, each time the left ventricle contracts, it creates that pressure wave and blood moves through the system. Uh, Between that and the contraction and relaxation of the skeletal muscles in your lower extremities, the blood's forced back up those veins. But as it's forced up the veins, it's caught by those valves so it doesn't, I guess, go back too far between contractions. Yeah. circulation of the heart um, coronary arteries what's the very first thing that the heart feeds with oxygenated blood it's itself and it does so through the coronary your coronary veins Or, uh, doggone coronary arteries how many main coronary arteries do you have what are they called one's on the right one's on the left what do we call them Right and left. <laughs> One of them bifurcates the left coronary artery, right? It bifurcates into two main branches. One goes down the front of the left ventricle, and we call that the anterior descending branch, right? Because if it goes down the front, it is anterior descending. And the other one's called circumflex because it goes around. To the back side, well, to the back side of the left ventricle. Does that make sense? All right. What's the worst heart attack in the world to have? To occlude the left coronary artery prior to the bifurcation, right? Because that means there's no oxygenated blood getting to really anywhere in the left ventricle. We've got it. We've got a real cute name for those heart attacks. What do we call them? The widowmakers, because folks don't typically survive those. Yep, there's your coronary arteries.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Pulmonary circulation we've talked about. Systemic uh, uh, arterial circulation. Look, you do not have to know every artery and every vein in the body, but I would know the major ones, especially the ones that are kind of associated with pulse points. Okay, if you feel for a pulse in an infant, you you should feel underneath the arm, right there where the brachial artery is, right. The brachiocephalic artery it's going to run from this general area towards the head, right? Left common carotid, right carotid, left subclavian below the clavicle, subclavian, it runs that direction in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I would know uh, where I would know your the greater saphenous veins. Where are they located? yeah, down by the morals. Okay, and as it pertains to us, and the reason why that's people who uh, have um, clots forming their lower legs, it's normally in those those saphenous veins, and clots. That break free and float through your circulatory system, they turn out to be a bad thing, right? If they land in your heart, what do we call those? STEMIS. MIs, heart attacks, it might be a STEMI. If they land in your head, what do we call those? Strokes. 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 Ischemic strokes. Hemorrhagic. If they if they bust a vessel, it'd be hemorrhagic. Yeah, but that clot would be an ischemic. The brachiocephalic artery is the first vessel to branch from the aortic arch, runs up the the neck there. But what's not demonstrated here is right at the base of the brain, these arteries kind of run in a circle, right at the base of the brain. And what's the name of that artery or arteries? The circle of Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S, that's correct. Subclavian runs down through your, to your uh, um, upper extremity. Yeah. In your abdomen, what, what's your, your arteries and veins that go to and from the liver? What are those called? The what? Hepatic. Yes. The hepatic artery, hepatic veins. And just as a general rule, does blood flow in all your vessels all the time? No. No. It's kind of redirected in places it needs to be, right? So why do you think if you eat a whole bunch of food, why do you think you go into those food comas and kind of get sleepy and just want to sit there for a little while? Why do you think that is? The bulk of your blood supply has been redirected toward your your liver and your uh, your kidneys and, and your intestines. So it can do additional work, so you just kind of want to just sit there, right? That's fine. What makes up our blood? Plasma. Most of it's plasma or the water part, right? But then you've got and that is also the vehicle or the medium in which your formed elements travel through. And when I say the formed elements, I'm talking about the red blood cells, also known as what? Urethrocytes. And your white blood cells, known as leukocytes. And then your platelets, which are known as thrombocytes. That's correct. What transports oxygen through the blood? What? The hemoglobin. the hemoglobin. Where's the hemoglobin located? Red blood, red blood cells. cells. It's also where your iron's at, right? That's why it's got that reddish hue, if you will. Average adult has about five liters of blood. Is there anybody who's... And I'm not being funny, but is there anybody who doesn't understand what perfusion is? We all understand. We're talking about the movement of oxygenated blood through all the organs in adequate amounts, right? And if we don't have enough, that's called what? Shock or hypoperfusion. So, just briefly, what happens? if, If your chemoreceptors... Or your your um, baroreceptors, which read the pressure in the blood vessels, if they detect a problem or or we're, we're hypoperfusing in some fashion, and the body detects that, what? How does the body react to that? What does it do? Blood the
1: constricts the brain, constructs the arteries.
0: Okay, all that's right. But what does it do to make that happen? Secretes Secretes epinephrine. Secrets epinephrine. Adrenaline, right? So, and epinephrine. Then, what does epinephrine do to the body? Was it? How does it affect? Let me just ask you this: Would you consider epinephrine to have beta qualities? Yes, and alpha too, right? Because we're we're looking at constriction of blood vessels as well, right? So, epinephrine secreted into the body, heart rate does what? Increases. Respiratory rate does what? Increases. Now why? Why is your heart rate and respiratory rate increasing because of this epinephrine? What's the body trying to bring in more of? Oxygen, Oxygen right? Because we're hypoperfusing for some reason. So it secretes epinephrine, heart rate increases, respiratory rate increases. What happens to the blood vessels in the periphery of the body? Those those pre and post capillary sphincters close, shunting blood toward the core of the body where the vital organs are. Um and what happens to the pupils? Why do they dilate? Like? That's that whole mammalian thing from supposedly millions of years ago if you believe that crap, right? All that's telling you is because it's the fight or flight general adaptation syndrome. It doesn't matter why epinephrine's in your blood; it's in your blood, and it does the same thing. And it gets back gets back to that whole fight or flight uh, mentality. You you, you you're you're, uh, you're either fixing to stand your ground and fight, or you're fixing to unasked the situation, right? So you got to see better, right? So you, your pupils kind of dilate, and though... When I went to instructor school, they told me I'm not supposed to say stuff like "unass." Okay, that's wrong. I said, i pray for the pygmies where, I forget what he said, <laughs> whatever.
1: Dear Lord, I apologize. Yeah. Pygmies
0: down in New Guinea. New Guinea, that's where it was. So anyhow, so that's what epinephrine does in reaction to that. Um, there you go. The lymphatic system, and they don't tell you a whole bunch about this, but just in a nutshell or in general terms, what does the lymphatic system do for you? What what other body systems it kind of aid? Huh? Um, uh, immune, uh, immune system, right? Let me ask you a question. When you go to the doctor, you've been sick, right? You go to the doctor, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to get the grabbing on you, right? They're going to squeeze underneath your neck, probably get up in your old armpit, right? What are they feeling for? Swollen, swollen, lymph, lymph, nose. swollen lymph nodes. Because if, if there's something in your body that your body's not really cool with being there, and, and the lymphatic system is a passive circulatory system that kind of runs hand in hand with your, I guess, your, your normal circulatory system. Looking at the interstates again, uh, and when you get up around Atlanta and everything, you've got those service roads, right? Roads that run parallel with the interstate, and they build a bunch of crap on there. Think of your lymphatic system kind of like those service roads. They kind of run in conjunction with the rest of your circulatory system. But its main function is to help filter these... these these foreign particles and invaders that's in your bloodstream that the body don't want there. It captures them. They get hung up in a lymph node. Lymph node swells. That's how my doctor's feeling for you. Central nervous system. All organs are encapsulated in some sort of membrane, right? What's the central nervous system encapsulated in? CSS.
1: But
0: what are the membranes? The meninges. The meninges. That's right. And we're talking about the central nervous system. We're talking about the brain and the uh, spinal cord, right? Brain has three major subdivisions. The, uh, the cerebrum, which is the gray matter of the, the main right and, and left hemisphere of the brain. You've got the cerebellum, which is a little out pocket of brain that's posterior to the brain stem, and then of course the brain stem. Uh, then it's in- all encapsulated in- into the uh, meninges or the meningeal layers. The cerebrum is the largest part of the brain. Uh, the frontal, parietal, temporal, and occipital lobes, but it's still that right and left hemisphere. You need to know, I think this picture, yeah, shows you which part or which lobe controls what. What hemisphere of the brain, and I'm not talking about the lobes now, but which hemisphere of the brain controls your ability to speak? the left. Okay? So if there's an injury, say like a stroke or whatever, and the patient is aphasic, in other words, they can't speak, where do you think the stroke is? The it's on the left side. What side of the body do you think they won't be able to feel or move? The right, the right side. Which pupil's going to be blown? It's opposite too, right? So... Cerebellum coordinates various activities of the body. That little outpocketing of brain sometimes called the athlete's brain or the little brain because it handles muscle, muscular coordination, things of that nature. And the brain stem is where the basic functions of life are controlled. Your blood pressure, your breathing, uh, your pupils. The midbrain, the pons, and the medulla oblongata. Why is an alligator so ornery?
1: Yeah,
0: because it got all them teeth and no toothbrush. God damn it,
1: Colonel Sanders.
0: You wrong. All right. Spinal cord, it's an extension of your brain stem. And listen, you've got sensory nerves and you've got motor nerves. Sensory nerves detect whatever stimulus is coming from our environment, sends the message to the spinal cord, up to the brain. The brain encodes the message and sends it back down to the motor nerves telling you to do whatever you need to do at that point in time or whatever. And listen, if if, if you're more comfortable waiting until after class to tell me that's fine, especially some of you new, your newer guys to the class. Some of this, I'm assuming, is kind of like a refresher for you or whatever. But if I'm going too fast and you're not picking up what you feel you need to pick up, feel free to come tell me. I mean, you can tell me now if you're comfortable with it. But if you're not in front of a group, then tell me later. It's going to be all right, okay? But you all got to communicate with me if I'm doing that. But I'm really thinking some of this is review. The meninges, that encloses the central nervous system, and then you have this cerebrospinal fluid that kind of washes over things inside of the uh, meninges. You've got three layers. You've got the dura mater. Is that the inside layer, middle layer, or the outside layer? Outside layer. The dura mater has another name. Hard mother. Has called the hard mother. That's right. You can't make that up. That's the hard mother. The one in the middle is called the what? Arachnoid. Arachnoid. How did it get its name? Because right underneath the arachnoid is a little bit of a space. You've got the three layers, but there's a little bit of a space underneath that second one. Called the subarachnoid space. And then back in the day in the 1700s 1700s when Ben Franklin was over there in France serving as ambassador... But they were digging up them graves and cutting in the bodies to discover the human anatomy. Yeah, that happened. Okay, this when things like this were discovered. That that space underneath that arachnoid layer had a bunch of very tiny, tiny blood vessels in there. They looked like spider webs. Ar- arachnophobia is what? Fear, fear spiders. spiders. Arachnoid. It refers to spiders because of those little vessels. Okay, duramater, arachnoid, subarachnoid space. I gave some of y'all another name for that subarachnoid space that registry likes to use and you can't let it trick you. But sometimes it's called the what? The ventricles of the brain. So if registry asks you something about the brain and the ventricles, you're first going to think, well, they're trying to treat me because the ventricles are in the heart. <laughs> Pay attention because the word ventricle... Really just means space. So don't let that fool you. So the subarachnoid space is sometimes called the ventricles of the brain. And that's where cerebrospinal fluid is produced and reabsorbed in the ventricles of the brain. And then the inner layer is called the pia mater, also known as the soft mother. Okay, hard mother is on the outside, soft mother is on the inside. The diencephalon is that, that part of the the cerebrum just superior to the brain stem, and that's where your your hypothalamus and your thalamus are located and uh, and it goes a long way toward helping control core body temperature in conjunction with the skin. The way I've explained that before is that your diencephalon, right there, in particular, your your hypothalamus, and the skin is kind of like your your thermostat hanging on the wall. And you remember those old radiator systems that used to flush hot water in there, and then the the, the heat would just rise off the old radiators. It's your thermostat and your skin, or your your hypothalamus and your skin, is, is real similar to that. Limbic system influences emotions, motivation, mood, sensations, pain, and pleasure. The limbic system is a, you know, they say the frontal lobe of the brain controls higher education and learning and more advanced emotions or whatever. The old limbic system. How many of y'all have ever had somebody say something or or they do something or you see something and you instantly just see red? You just... Bam, boy, and you, your fuse is lit and you're mad. You're ready to choke somebody to sleep. You ever been there before? That's your limbic system kicking in. Also, and some people have an overactive limbic system, all right? I'm just going to tell you. Uh, also, it, 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 overactive limbic systems. Have you ever known particular people that, are, that startle real easily? Like if you walk into the room... It doesn't matter how I enter my bedroom if my wife's in my bedroom. It doesn't matter. I can announce, hey, honey, I'm at home. Or I can just walk in there. It doesn't matter. I'm going to scare the shit out of her. No matter how I do it. And she's startled. Huh? You talking about
1: me? No. Yes, sweetheart. We are. So. I just, I just heard that you scared somebody.
0: You're telling on yourself now. <laughs> I, it's big fun scaring him by the way but, no. <laughs> but overactive limbic system those people that startle really easily that's what that is that's that the basic more primitive emotions and reactions don't let your limbic system control how you act and react to people they, they won't like it I know uh, your nervous system again sensory and motor nerves I've kind of hit on that already <laughs> Um, but I will pause for a second let's talk about the, your, all right, you've got your central nervous system and then the rest of it is your peripheral nervous system and then you've got subsections or components of the peripheral nervous system known as the somatic nervous system and the, uh, the um, autonomic nervous system somatic nervous system that's things that you can consciously control right? If I'm sitting here thinking, all right, I need to draw a pretty picture, so I'm going to bend down here and I'm going to pick up this blue marker. I had conscious control over that. Somatic. Autonomic nervous system. That kind of sounds like automatic, right? Those are the functions, the body functions, that you don't have conscious control of. I can't sit here and say, man, I ate a big old meal. I better increase my uh, my digestive process and so I can metabolize it just don't work, right? Nice. Automatic. That's the autonomic nervous system. And it's going to react, and, and you get really complicated with it, but what you need to, all you really need to know about the autonomic nervous system is you're going to have one or two reactions of the autonomic nervous system. You're going to speed up some process or you're going to slow down some process. And if you speed up or have a well, if you speed up processes through your autonomic nervous system, that's called a sympathetic response, right? A sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system means your whatever your digestive process is increased, whatever. Or you have parasympathetic response. It slows down. Everybody good with that? Remember that? All right. 12 pair of cranial nerves. Who can name them?
1: Oh, oh, to touch and feel. Olfactory, optical, nasal. Oh,
0: oh, oh. Next class, I want everybody to come in here with the 12 pairs of cranial nerves written out on a piece of paper. I want you to look them up and write them down. Yeah, if you if you want if you want to draw out that diagram that I think I gave y'all a long time ago, that's fine too. But write them out, bring them to class. And we'll, we'll talk more about them then. All right, and listen. Y'all take a short break.